there is another dimension beyond anything you've known before. A world of ideals that are as vast in their significance as they are in their application. You are traveling into another reality, a world that lies between imagination and the touch points of everyday life. A wondrous kingdom whose boundaries are supernatural. You're entering a parallel world. Several years ago, I went into our local guitar store with the intent to buy the hottest, coolest, newest little guitar pedal gizmo thing for my guitar rig, right? If you've ever seen Dave or, or um, some of the other guys up here, you know, stepping on stuff, it, it changes the way your guitar sounds. And so I, I was like, this new thing came out, and it had a bunch of things loaded into it, and I was super excited. And I went in there, I, I'd saved up my money, but I got two numbers in the MSRP flipped in my head. I, I, I had saved up enough for a pedal that was $159.95. It was $195.95. But I was a regular there. Like, I mean, when I walked in, they were like, hey, Casey, good to see you again today. Um, you know, like, it was on a first-name basis with, with, with the manager. Hey, Mike, good to see you. You know, and so he, I told him, like, oh, I didn't realize this. And he said, it's okay, it's fine, don't worry about it. Uh, we'll just give you store credit, and you just pay me when you can, you know. Now, he knew who I was and what I did in the community. So, it, like, my reputation is at stake here, right? It, he knew he would get his money. And I was thinking, I've got an outside speaking gig that I'm getting paid for here in a couple weeks. It's no problem. So, yeah, sure. And I took the thing home, and I enjoyed it for a couple weeks, and it was great. Now, how would you respond, Chapel Rock, if you heard, maybe through the grapevine, that when I went back in two weeks later to pay the thing off, Mike, the manager, said to me, he said, you know, hey, uh, you're such a great customer, and we really appreciate your business. Um, you know what? We just forgave the, the extra 40 bucks that you didn't have. That's okay. Don't worry about it. But in return, would you be willing to mention in a sermon, like publicly, that we are the best guitar store in the region? Would that be Okay. <laughs> How would you respond to that? Some of you are like, no, 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 man. That means your influence is for sale for the highest bidder. And some of you are like, hey, you got a good deal. You know, like, that's fantastic. You know, whatever, because I don't need that stuff. It doesn't, it doesn't affect me at all. Like, others would be like, I got way bigger fish to fry. Who cares, you know? Well, the, don't worry, that didn't happen. I, you know, I went in and I, I paid the thing off. But it kind of raises the question, like, well, what... <laughs> What currency are you actually exchanging here, Casey? Dollars and cents or integrity and influence? Well, what are we talking about here? It also raises the question, are we managing our money or is it, or the lack of it, managing us? We're going to deal with that today. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Thank you so much for being here today. Our text today is Luke 16, 1 to 15. Grateful that you're here. Uh, I want to take a second and encourage you to fill out your connection card if you haven't done that yet. Uh, that really helps us. And especially for those of you watching online, uh, grateful that you logged in. Thanks for doing that. It takes a little extra effort from you if you're going to do church online to stay engaged. So fill out that connection card. Be active in the chat. Uh, and it, you know, if we're going to do digital discipleship, that just it, it asks a little extra of you, but we're glad that you logged in. Thank you. Uh, a few things to let you know about today. Uh, first of all, next Sunday night at 6 p.m. 
is our worship night. And we planned this like way back in April. We, weren't, we didn't know if we were going to have a, worship, a new worship pastor or not. We thought we should do one of these again. It's been a while, and this gives a, a chance for the team to come together. So this is uh, it's an on-site only thing. So if you're watching online, we're not going to stream this. It's on-site only at 6 p.m. Uh, I want to encourage you to be here. We're going to have a great night of worship. The band's been getting ready, and the, and the praise team's been getting ready for this. Um, Kyle's going to be here, and he's going to share his testimony for a few minutes. And so an opportunity for you to get to know him a little bit better, at least kind of in a one-way uh, setting. Um, and then he's going to sing with us a little bit. You know, he's not had a chance to practice as much with, with the team. Uh, so we're really excited about that. Our, our women's ministry is going to be doing desserts in the lobby when we're done. This is going to be a great experience. You are not going to want to miss that. That is next Sunday night, August 7th at 6 p.m. Okay. Also, uh, you probably saw the tables in the lobby for the Community Connection event coming up on Saturday, August 27th. Uh, many of you are familiar with, we've had a group here within the church doing what's called the appreciative inquiry process. They were going around meeting with different groups and asking, like, what do you love about Chapel Rock? What is it that keeps you here? Asking some of those kind of questions. This event is designed to take that process beyond the walls of the church. So we're inviting the community in to ask them similar kinds of questions. What is it that you love about living on the west side? And to kind of begin that appreciative inquiry process with the community so that as we launch a community development corporation soon, we have got, we got some early wins that we can be part of. We still need about 30 volunteers uh, to be part of that. So if you're, gonna, if you're free uh, on the 27th and can carve out the time, uh, we really could use your help. Please uh, sign up in the lobby. Stop by that booth. A lot of different opportunities, a lot of different ways to use your gifts. Uh, to serve, and a great way to be present in the community and connect with people. Two more things here, uh, real quick. Actually, it's kind of the same thing, but two families. I want to encourage you to uh, keep the Honeyman and May families in your prayers. Two of our sisters had a reunion in heaven this week. Bev Honeyman and Martha May uh, both passed away within the last couple days. So we don't have any information about arrangements yet. Um, and so I uh, want to just encourage you, please, uh, well, Bev's uh, memorial was, uh, funeral was uh, a couple days ago, but we don't know about Martha yet. Uh, but just keep um, Mike and Alicia Honeyman in your prayers and Michael and um, Eric and Carrie in your prayers as well uh, as they, you know, have to enter this new, new reality. So let's, uh, let's do that now. God, thank you for today. We're grateful for the, the opportunity we have to gather together, Lord, in freedom and peace and safety. And we're just mindful, God, of those great blessings and pray that you'd help us use them for your glory. Uh, we know that we've got brothers and sisters all around the world, God, who, who you know, um, are scared to gather for church or uh, don't have the freedom to do so. And so we just lift them up to you today. We also want to uh, lift up the Honeyman and May families to you uh, and ask your blessing on them. We just, Lord, your word says that you're the God of all comfort and you, you comfort those in their sorrows with, with uh, comfort that can only come from Jesus. And so we pray in his name, Jesus, that you just surround them with your love. Uh, and, and we ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. For the last few weeks, we've been in a sermon series on the parables in Luke. And the parables that Jesus taught were, 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 were ordinary ways of telling stories. In, in Jesus' day, the idea of a parable was not unique to Jesus. Other teachers used them. There are even some examples in the Old Testament. But in Jesus' parables, he really subverts our expectations. Like, like there's, a, there's a point in the story where it just, it just kind of hangs a left. Like, and where did that come from? And that's usually the interpretive key to understanding it, right? That point where the story goes and turns... Oh, okay. So he takes the, what's normal 
and he subverts that expectations. And it can feel like we're living in an alternate reality, right? It's like we're in an episode of the Twilight Zone or, or Stranger Things. And today's parable is probably the biggest example of that, of, of any parable in any four of the four Gospels. And I'm going to tip my hand right here at the very beginning because I want you to hear the big idea early because you need to keep it in mind as we're reading the text. Here's the big idea this morning. The way that you use wealth determines who your real master is. Paul, in his meditation, talked a little bit about lordship. We're going to come back to that theme repeatedly today. Our text today has been called one of the most, if not the most, difficult to understand of the parables of Jesus. You see, here's why. If you take, there are two words in the parable, and if you flip the order of them, if you invert and switch where they are in the sentence, it literally calls into question the entire ethical system of Jesus. If you flip the order of these two words, you, you got massive interpretive problems. Because it sounds, if you, were, if you were to change them, it would sound like Jesus is saying that it's okay to do something wrong. And, and even if like, well, he never said that. Okay, well, now you have issues with the authority of Scripture, right? Because you're saying, well, Luke recorded something incorrectly. We can't go there either. Now, he did it right, okay? We're going to get to that. But I just, I want you to understand, this is a very difficult parable. And, and part of the reason I wanted to do this in this series is because people read this and had someone come up to me after first service and was just like, like, oh my goodness, I have read that and I've wondered for years what that meant. So I just, I'm, if nothing else, as your pastor, I want to equip you as you read your Bible to go, oh, okay, that makes more sense now, okay? So that's what I'm trying to do today. But you also, you can't just pull, people pull the parable out and they see it in isolation. You have to see it in its context, right? Your context is king when, when you're doing biblical interpretation. So you have to see it in context, and we're going to look at that today, all right? As, as we do that, I want you to listen for the idea that unites the parable with what follows it. So look with me at Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, so understand this is not for the crowd, this is for, like, obviously the 12, but that bigger, probably a group of about 120 who really followed him closely, okay? This is for his disciples. So he's not, like, speaking to just anybody and everybody. This is for people who say that they follow Jesus. <coughs> That's you. <coughs> okay? Listen up. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he, the rich man, called him, the manager, in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, and I want to pause right there. What follows is his inner monologue, right? We're getting Luke, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knows what the man thought, right? And, and, and of course, Jesus is, you know, creating this story. So as, as the divine author of the story, he can make the guy think whatever he wants to think. Whether or not we're supposed to understand that like this whole mental dialogue happened on the way into the master or if he just kind of freezes in that moment, that's not really the point. You're, you're getting, you know, buried in the details. Don't do that. All right. If, if for, the, for the sake of the narrative, it probably would have been a servant from, sent from the master. Hey, the boss says you've mismanaged stuff. He's calling you in. You got to go. And the guy has the dialogue with himself on the way. But again, that's getting buried in the details. This is the guy's thought process. He says, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job, and I'm not strong enough to dig, blue-collar work, and I'm, I'm ashamed to beg. As the steward of a wealthy man, he had some status in his society. He didn't want to give it up. Pe people, people looked at him when he walked through the marketplace. 
He says, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Cuts it in half. And then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. Take your bill and make it 800. Not half, 80%. Why? He knows his master's bottom line. He knows what the master needs to, to not be impoverished by this. And what he's doing is he's giving the maximum discount, right? He's giving them as much off as he possibly can so that he does not impoverish his master, but he earns a lot of goodwill with these vendors that he works with. Here's where the story turns. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Those are the words. You flip uh, dishonest and shrewd and Jesus' ethics go right out the window. If, if it were to say the master commended the shrewd manager because he acted dishonestly, Jesus' ethics fall apart. But that's not what it says, is it? He commended, he was dishonest, but what Jesus is commending is not his dishonesty, but his shrewdness. We'll define that in a little bit. Jesus goes on, he says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Right? This, this, this agrees with what Jesus says, lay up treasure for yourselves in heaven, right? In the Sermon on the Mount. This, it's the same idea. He says, whoever, this is the verse that Paul read, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. I saw an interview with a football player, Deion Sanders, and it was really fascinating. Of course, he was very successful as a football player, and then as a commentator, you know, the guys, he's got money, right? And they, they were asking him, and he's also a man of faith, and they asked him about this, and basically he just said, money doesn't make you good or bad, it just makes you more of what you already are. If you're a good man, if you give a good man more money, he'll, he'll be able to do good with it. You give a bad man more money, he'll be able to do bad with it. So I sure hope that guy that won the Mega Millions thing in Illinois is a good man. Or a woman, whoever it was, we don't know yet. So I'm sure they're you know, getting a lawyer right, right now and a financial advisor. He says, he goes on to say in verse 11, So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches. Oh, we get Jesus' perspective. Worldly wealth is not the same as true riches. Those are different. So there's an alternate currency floating around out there. He says, if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either he, you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. The idea is they're, they're whispering, right? They're, they're, they're hey, can't you, can you believe this guy? This guy's crazy. Can you believe this one? What he said? And they're, they're kind of talking behind their hand. And of course, Jesus knows <laughs> what they're thinking. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. What do you do with this story? 
I mean, what does this even mean? What does this teach us in relation to using our wealth versus the kind of currency that God seems to value? Because there's two different currencies at play in this text. You probably all know people who, like money and financial security is the number one thing in their life. But it is their number one. I'm, I've got to make money. I've got to provide for myself and my family and my kids and my, you know, whatever. If that's your perspective, you need to understand this. Money is your master. <laughs> Real wealth, this parable teaches us, is, is something other than cash. It's not dollars and cents. That there is an alternate currency. Heaven runs on an alternate currency. Think about how the value of gold, right? It's worth a lot of money. I didn't check the current price. Hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars an ounce. You realize in, in heaven, that's just what we put down for the street, right? Like that's, we value gold, and in heaven, that's pavement. Heaven runs on a different currency than we think. We, when we use wealth for the glory of God, it turns into an alternate currency. It's like having money from a parallel world brought into this one. You know what I mean when I say alternate currency? I should probably clarify that. Bitcoin. Have you heard of Bitcoin, right? Or, or Litecoin, that's another one. Amazon now has Amazon coins. There's this thing called Dogecoin. If you're not a millennial or Gen X or Gen Z, you won't even know what that means. Don't worry about it. But, right, there's, there's all these different currencies out there, and they're real. Like, you can pay real money, and you can buy them, and then you can use those to buy things, and, and the value bounces around a lot. Let me give you another example. Starbucks stars. It's a real currency. Like, you, you can give them to people, and they can go get a food or drink at Starbucks. You know, it, it's an alternate. It's not, now, here's the deal. If you've got lots of Starbucks stars, all you did is prepay for your food. You pre, because they don't, <laughs> they wouldn't give that to you if it cost them something. It doesn't. You just prepaid for your next drink. That's all. That's all you've done. But it is a real currency, and you can buy and trade and, and get, get those things. So how do we make sure that we're using the right currency? How do we know if we're using it correctly? The short answer is that you use the wealth of this world for the glory of God, and it will become an alternate currency. It's heaven's currency of glory, love, and honor. Okay? And, and using the, the wealth of this world to become an alternate currency has three parts. Here's the first part. You need to use wealth intelligently. You need to use wealth intelligently. In the parable, the manager does something that's really, really smart. It's totally dishonest, but it's really, really smart. It's shrewd. In fact, the word translated shrewd in verse 8 means understanding resulting from insight and wisdom. Now, this manager has understood his master brilliantly. Right? I, want, I want you to imagine this scene with me. I want you to see this, right? So this is in a village in the Middle East in the first century. Very few of them had more than, you know, a, a couple thousand people tops. Most villages are, were small, several hundred folks. Word gets around really quick in a marketplace environment like that. So, so this happens, and these people who have had their debts reduced immediately go back to the agora, the marketplace, 
and they begin to, to tell the story. Can you, our, our landowner, uh, the, the landlord is the most generous man who's ever lived in the history of our village. Do you know what he did? I owed 900 gallons of olive oil and his steward told me I could take my bill and cut it in half. And the other guy comes back and he goes, oh, I just met with him. He gave me a 20% reduction. Our manager is the, and the party breaks out. And everybody's like, this guy's awesome. Wow. And the master is suddenly faced with a choice. He's got two options. Option one, legally, he can go to the village elders and he can say, my steward had been released from his responsibility. (laughs) He was not authorized to do that. What he did was wrong. These people still owe that money and you need to insist that they pay their debt in full. That's one option. But what would happen? Well, you all know what would happen if you've been around people very long, right? <laughs> immediately, immediately, a pa- what was, was a party turns into a corporate gripe session. This guy is cold. He's heartless. What a cruel joke. I can't, was this all just a joke at our expense? I can't believe he would do this. That's option one. Option two is this master can remain quiet He can pay the price of this clever rascal's salvation and continue to enjoy his reputation as a kind and generous man. The servant is absolutely shrewd. He is so smart. He's got his master figured out. And so he's commended for his brilliance. Not his dishonesty, his brilliance. And I think part of what Jesus is teaching his people is that we need to use wealth intelligently for the glory of God. And sometimes I think we forget that. We forget that he wants us to be smart with what he's given us. And sometimes we think that we need to be smart with with our stuff for our own benefit. There are lots of stories about that. Back in 1928, a group of the world's most successful financiers met at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. I want you to listen to who was there. Uh, Charles M. Schwab who at the time was the president of the U.S. Steel Corporation, not the Charles Schwab Investment Company, two totally different guys, all right? Um, But president of U.S. Steel, probably one of the biggest corporations in the world, honestly, at that time. Arthur Cutton, the greatest commodity speculator of the time. Richard Whitney, the president of the New York Stock Exchange. Albert Fall, who was the secretary of the interior for President Harding. And Jesse Livermore, one of the most successful investors ever on Wall Street. Just to name a few. They weren't the only ones there, but they were there. Collectively, these tycoons controlled more wealth than was in the United States Treasury at the time. Massive amounts of wealth. And and newspaper articles would go around and encourage the youth of the nation to become like these people because they were so smart and they'd, they'd risen to such a height and they had so much wealth. Are things any different? We look at Elon Musk and we look at Bill Gates and we look at Jeff Bezos and we go, wow. That's who it was of the time. 25 years later, here's what had happened to these people. The president of U.S. Steel, Charles Schwab, lived on borrowed money the last five years of his life. He died broke. The greatest commodity speculator, Arthur Cutton, died of a heart attack while embroiled in lawsuits and under suspicion from the justice system. President of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, did time in Sing Sing Prison. Member of the president's cabinet, Albert Fall, was pardoned from prison so he could die at home. And the most successful investor on Wall Street, Jesse Livermore, committed suicide. 
They're so smart. Yeah, but they're managing money for their own glory, not God's glory. And I don't care how smart you are. You need to manage it for God's glory. And, but you need to be smart. Be intelligent about that. They made a lot of money. Eventually, though, they thought that their intelligence could let them game the system. And, and no, it doesn't work that way. We're supposed to manage money for the glory of God. And when we do that, it becomes an alternate currency. John Wesley famously said, gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Young people, I cannot give you better financial advice than John Wesley. It's, it, get, make, every, make all the money you can make, save all the money you can save, give away all the money you can give away. It's brilliant advice. And, and those of you who are not quite so young, it applies to you too, right? It, it, it was, it's absolutely brilliant. That's, that's the smartest thing I can tell you. The essence of that is to be smart with your money for the glory of God. And when you do that, currency changes into an alternate currency and it changes from, from dollars and cents to glory and praise. We told you recently that there was a family in the church that, that when both of them had passed, we found out they'd given a large estate gift. They put Chapel Rock in their will. And it just kept growing and growing and growing. And I cannot tell you and, and how many times I have praised God for that. I can't tell you because I've lost count. Just as, that, as, as the news of that continued to develop, myself and our elders and the staff have all just been like, God, you are so good to us. Wow! Do you understand what has happened? Those dollars and cents that were given have transformed into an alternate currency of glory and honor and praise to God Almighty. It, it's changed. And they, they just, they made a really smart decision a long time ago, and it, it had huge benefits for the kingdom. And so I'm encouraging you to use wealth intelligently for the glory of God. And watch it change into something else that goes even greater than dollars and cents. God gave you brain. He expects you to use it. That's one part of the plan. Here's the second part of the plan. To use wealth honestly. We've already said that the manager in the text is not honest. I mean, he should have turned the books in immediately upon being fired. He perpetuates this scheme to be sure that he's got a place to go next. The manager, he's totally dishonest with his master, yes, but he's also dishonest with the people in his community. He's li this guy's lying to everyone. And superficially, the parable appears to present the story of a steward who cheats his master and is commended by Jesus for being a liar and a thief. And I, we, we, need, we need to go here. So you history nerds will, will dig this. The rest of you, I think, hopefully will learn something here. In the early uh, days of the Christian church, right, Rome persecuted the church. And you have Emperor Constantine who converts, and all of a sudden that kind of changes things. And, and then we have this guy, Julian the Apostate. So he, he was a Roman emperor. He reigned from 361 to 363 AD. And he, so there were, I think, one or two like emperors, and then there was this dude. And he, he thought that um, Christianity was not good for Rome. And so he went back to worshiping the pagan Roman pantheon. And he tried to, tried to stop people, tried to stop Romans from being Christians. He used this story to say that Christians' ethical system was corrupt and that good, patriotic Romans would never become Christians. Why? Because he misunderstood the story. He thought that it was Jesus was commending the guy's dishonesty. That's not the case. Jesus does not commend the manager's dishonesty. Instead, he commends the manager's shrewdness. Right? 
T.W. Manson, I think, stated it perfectly. He said, there is all the difference in the world between I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly and I applaud the clever steward because he acted dishonestly. Those are two totally different things. And dishonesty just doesn't, it just doesn't work. I mean, the truth always comes out. Inevitably, it comes out. Maybe you heard the story about the guy, he went out drinking with his buddies one night. Just out all night carousing, went to the bar, got in a fight, came home in the wee hours of the morning, you know, and he knew that his wife was just going to read him the riot act. So he, he snuck into the room and he went in the bathroom and tried to bandage up all his, you know, scrapes and cuts and black eye and all that stuff. And he came up with this story about how he fell down, slipped into bed and went to sleep with a smile on his face thinking he would pulled one over on his wife. He wakes up late the next morning to see her standing over his bed, arms crossed and scowling at him. She said, you went out drinking and fighting last night, didn't you? He said, honey, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I, 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 I fell down. What's on my face is just because I, I fell. She said, oh, you fell. Well, then who put the Band-Aids all over the bathroom mirror? <laughs> Dishonesty just doesn't work. It doesn't work in a marriage, and it doesn't work in managing our wealth either. When you use wealth honestly, it becomes an alternative currency to do good in the world. How many times have you seen the news story, right, about the, the leader of some foundation who gets in trouble because they mismanaged funds? They took what people had given, right, that they gave to do some good in the world, and they mismanaged it, and now there's a scandal. How many times have you seen that news story play out, right? And it always gets way more press than what the foundation actually was there to do. Always, like, the only time you, you find out what the foundation is for is like if they're out to help kids. Because like, dude, you stole from crippled kids. Like, you are the worst. It's pretty bad. But Jesus says using wealth honestly, having integrity with how we manage the wealth that God has given us, turns it into an alternative currency that gives glory to God. Because God is always honest. <laughs> God is the epitome of the truth. You, you can't glorify God with money that's gained dishonestly. So be honest in how you deal with money. There's one more part to this plan of how, how money becomes, uh, wealth becomes an alternative currency. And we need to use wealth purposefully. Use wealth purposefully. I think this parable will be a lot more difficult to interpret and it really would be borderline nonsense if Jesus didn't follow it up with some of the teaching that is recorded by Luke in the latter part of the chapter or the latter part of our text today. You know, he talks about, you know, true riches, is, you know, is different than the wealth of this world. He says that um, you're not able to serve both God and money and the capstone is Jesus' statement in verse 15, right? About the things that man highly values are detestable in God's sight. In the parable, the manager's only out to protect himself. He says he's too weak to dig. He can't take a blue-collar job and, and earn an honest day's living, right? And he's too proud to beg. He's got some status in the society that he doesn't want to give up. There's no way he's going to stand out there by the gate and say, alms, alms for the poor, alms. So he hatches this really smart but really dishonest scheme. And he shows that he is truly a person of this world, is how the NIV translates it. In Greek, it's literally a son of this age, which is, which is interesting because Jesus, in the same verse, will use a, a parallel phrase here. Jesus calls his 
followers to be children of the light, literally sons of the light. So you have sons of this age versus sons of the light. You're seeing the, the, the contrast here. We're supposed to manage wealth differently than the world around us. We're supposed to do it with a purpose. And when we manage wealth with a purpose for the glory of God, it transforms into this alternate currency that that's what heaven runs on. That's what the economy of heaven runs on. See, I need to tell you, what Jesus is doing in this parable is he's using a how much more argument. The parables of Jesus really break down to about three categories, okay? So, so they're, they're just to apply this directly, they tend to fall into one of three categories. First is go and do likewise, right? That's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Be, you should be like this. Go and do likewise, right? Then secondly, there are the parables that are like, don't be like this, right? That's the, the parable of the, the, uh, the, sometimes called the parable of the minas or the parable of the talents, right? He gives the guy, one guy he gives five, one guy he gives two, one guy he gives one. The guy with one buries it, right? And, and he comes, and he's in trouble, right? When the master comes back, he's like, you should have at least put it on deposit at the bank. And, and he tells him, don't be like that guy, right? Don't do this. The third category, I think, are the most interesting. And it's the how much more categories. Fred's going to get into that one of those next week. It, the how much more. And, and basically, it works like this. If this is true about our world, how much more, then, is it true about God? That's, the way, that's what this parable is designed to show us, right? It, it, a great exa another example would be the parable of the persistent widow. Jesus tells this parable about a woman who goes to a judge and asks for justice, and he, he blows her off. And so she goes again, and he asks, she asks for justice, and he blows her off again and again and again, and she just keeps going back, and finally the judge is like, all right, lady, fine, you can have what you want. Because he's annoyed. And Jesus' point is, if that's true of an earthly judge and, and people who are persistent in asking, how much more then is it true that our loving father wants to answer his children who come to him in prayer? And Jesus even said, he, taught, he told this parable so that we should always pray and never give up. He, he gives the lesson. Th this is a how much more parable. And what he's saying here is, if the people of this world are intelligent in how they manage money, if they're shrewd, how much more then should God's people be intelligent in how they money? And manage money. And if the people in this world, you know, use worldly wealth to, to gain worldly security, how much more then should the sons of the light, the children of the light, use worldly wealth to invest in things that are eternal? So Jesus, it's interesting how he's connecting these ideas together. The people of the world are praised for being clever and handling money to get ahead, but disciples know that their wealth can be transformed into an alternate currency that gives God glory because we operate with purpose and integrity and intelligence in a way that the world can't because of the power of the Holy Spirit living inside us, because of what happened when Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sins and rose again. We manage money, church, with a purpose, to spread the gospel. And that's why one of the greatest preachers who's ever walked this earth, John Wesley, said, gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Because do, do you know that when he, he was practicing a reverse tithe, do you know this about John? Brother John Wesley, by the time he died, was giving away 90% of his wealth and living on 10. As he traveled around the world and preached, he basically never gave himself a raise. 
as his profile grew and his income grew with it, he just continued to live on the same modest amount and gave away more and more and more. Why? Because he wanted to spread the gospel. Because he understood that heaven works on an alternate currency than earth. So how do you do this? How do you manage your money purposefully? Well, first of all, it, it can't be your master if you tell it where to go, right? So you've got to set priorities and live by them. First and foremost, God and the work of the church to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, then food, shelter, and clothing for, for yourself and your family, then protection for them. I'm talk, by that, I'm talking about insurance and things like that, transportation, entertainment, in that order. Right? You set priorities for yourself and your family. Secondly, you, know, you have to make money subordinate to the will of God. Other, what I'm telling you is don't spend money on stuff God says is wrong. <laughs> okay? Like, this is, that, that's a bad idea. And if you, if you spend money on stuff that, that God says is wrong, you know, you're, you're, not, you're not being smart, you're not being honest, you're not doing it with purpose, all right? And thirdly, you gotta remember that you're a steward. You're, just, you're managing God's money. All of it is his, all of it. The, the Bible says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and it's a metaphor to say everything in the universe belongs to God, right? We just put this new James Webb, you know, uh, satellite telescope up in the sky. We can see further than we've ever been able to see before. And God's glories are revealed over and over and over again. It's all his. It's all his. How much stuff does God have? All of it. <laughs> all stuff is God's stuff. He lets you manage some, okay? Stewardship is bigger than money. It involves every aspect of our lives. And when we use wealth with a purpose, when we use it for the glory of God, it is transformed into an alternate currency. It becomes something else entirely. It's like having money from a parallel universe deposited into your bank account that's focused on bringing God glory and honor and praise because he alone is worthy. On January 1st, 2002, 12 European countries switched from their existing currencies the lira, the franc, Deutschmark, etc., to a new currency, the euro. After a grace period of about six or eight weeks, all traditional currency became worthless. And according to the, an article in the Chicago Tribune from about 20 years ago, there were two men in Berlin who planned to fill an empty swimming pool with nearly $45 million worth of Deutschmarks and invite people to dive in. Remember DuckTales, little kid's cartoon? Remember Scrooge McDuck? Right? He had this giant tower of money, right? and you just dive in and swim in it. Right? You could have done that! How fun would that be? The German government was going to use about 128 shredding machines to dispose of these old banknotes. The state government of Hesse was going to burn its marks in a heating system. The organizers of the Cologne Carnival were going to use shredded notes as confetti. Can you imagine going to a parade and confetti comes down and it's money all cut up? In fact, the Austrians planned to turn their shillings into 560 tons of compost. They're going to throw it in the ground and grow tomatoes. Here's the point. One day, everything that's valued by so many will be nothing more than compost. It'll burn. We'll use it to pave the streets in heaven. Did you hear me? The way that you use wealth determines who your real master is. If you use it only to provide comfort for yourself and those you care about, you've made it into a false god in your life. But if you use it to advance the kingdom and shine a light on the generous grace of God like the steward did for the master in the parable, then you have transformed wealth into an alternate currency for the glory of God. 
See, Jesus is making this how much more argument in the parable. And if it's true that the people of this world value money, how much more is it true that God's people should value glory and honor for our King and kings and Lord of lords and love for the things that God loves? That's the currency that heaven runs on. When you realize that and you value that by using worldly wealth to support heaven's priorities, it's clear that Jesus is your true master. You've got an opportunity to respond to this message today. Maybe some of you have never named Jesus as Lord, like Paul was talking about before. We're going to stand and sing a song together, and I would invite you to come forward and name him as Lord and be baptized. Receive the forgiveness that he has and receive the Holy Spirit that enables you to live this kind of life. I've known some people over the years that almost wonder sometimes if they got baptized and they held their wallet up out of the water. Like, you can have all of me, Jesus, except this. I don't know, maybe that's you. Maybe even as we sing, you need to repent. You need to say, God, I have given you everything in my life except that wallet. And I, today, Lord, it's yours. You have that too. Maybe you need prayer. We'd love to pray with you, come alongside you in, in a time of crisis, or it might not have anything to do with what we talked about today, but you just have a burden on your heart, want us to pray with you. We'd love that privilege. I'm going to ask you to stand with me and, and encourage you to respond as God leads you today. Let's sing together.